This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, April 17th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Mueller Report is hitting tomorrow. And here's how I will read the Mueller Report. If you do anything less, you are a bad person or journalist. So I will download the Mueller Report from a reputable site. And then I will ask the IT professionals within my office to disable my computer from ever accessing the internet again. I will print this out on a paper stock of no more than 100 pounds, but no less than 80. I will enter a room with no windows and only one means of egress. I will wonder about the meaning of egress. I will think, is pound really the right measurement of paper stock? Should it in fact be something more sheen-based? I will consider researching it before I realize I am in a windowless room and I've ruined my computer's internet functionality. I will sit down in a comfortable chair with a sturdy back, but no arms, and I will read the entire Mueller report. I will not tweet, I will not post, I will not share. I will take notes in the margin, but I will color code my notes into three categories. Conclusions that I vowed not to jump to. Conclusions that Mueller did not jump to. Conclusions that Barr tried to prevent Mueller from jumping to. I will tear this marginalia away from the page. I will eat it. I will leave the windowless room by one means of egress, and I will not make eye contact with the staff of What Next, with the members of the Slate political unit, or with any relatives, living or dead, of Slatist blogger Ben Mathis Lilly. I will mail to Ben Mathis Lilly a handwritten note apologizing for snubbing members of both the Mathis and the Lilly clan. My friend Zoe Chase will text me about her ruminations. I will calmly ask her, oh, what paper stock were you reading the report on? If your windowless room had windows, Zoe, would they be bay or portal? When Zoe responds, what are you talking about? This Mueller report is crazy. Did you see the thing on page 217? I will calmly explain to her that it is her duty as a journalist to ingest and then process and then reflect and then bargain and then seek realistic solutions and finally self-actualize. She will ask me what the hell I am talking about because my explanation of those proper stages of processing the Mueller report were filled with undecipherable typos and emojis. I will say everyone knows the Dracula guy next to the soccer ball means acceptance. I will then ask IT to reconnect me to the internet. I will engage in proper breathing techniques and a set of cable reverse crunches to engage my obliques. I will gradually emerge from the world of the Mueller investigation like a newborn chick expecting every other decent journalist to have engaged in the best practices of Mueller mindfulness. I will excoriate and shun anyone who read the report faster or better or tweeted faster or in a thirstier manner than I. And then and only then will I weigh in as to my interpretation. Not of the Mueller report, that will take place in 90 years, but of the Teapot Dome scandal. I think Albert Fall is maybe a little dishonest. On the show today... I spiel about living through history versus learning about it as refracted through the example of the Central Park Five case. But first, Tyler Cowen has a new book out, Defending Big Business. All right, not a popular choice, but Professor Cowen is a thoughtful, bordering on genius type man who always gives well thought out answers. With this in mind, I decided to barrage him with about a dozen tangentially related queries on the theory when you've got a smart guy, ask him everything you can and get out fast.
Tyler Cowen is the Holbert L. Harris Chair in Economics at George Mason University. I don't know if he's the smartest man in America. He's the smartest man in my podcast feed. Listen to Conversations with Tyler Cowen if you don't already. His new book, and he seems to, should we call them books or quarterlies? He seems to publish as much as the Harvard Business Review. His new book is called Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero. Thanks for coming on, Tyler. My pleasure. I think it's smart that you posit it as an anti-hero because anti-heroes are cool and we love Tony Soprano and we liked uh, Brian Cranston. Is that why you do it? Because if you just posit it as a monolith and an oppressive force, no one's going to get behind it? I've noticed that American rhetoric has changed. Republicans used to pretend much more to be a pro-business party, but now on key issues such as immigration and trade, they've become you know, more than not anti-business. And then on the Democratic side, there's much more interest in socialism and antitrust and breaking up big business, penalizing CEOs. So I think it's the country that's changed, not my rhetoric. In general, do you think big business helps most people along the economic ladder or just does better than the other alternatives we have? It does better than the other alternatives we have. Keep in mind, big business pays higher wages on average than small business does. And the general notion that what it produces for us, the innovations it brings, and the jobs it creates, they're a fundamental part of modern American lives. To use the Rawlsian idea, would you rather live in the big business as defined by America or the business economic climate of a more socialist, say, Nordic country? I think the Rawlsian comparison is the wrong one. The Nordic countries are as wealthy as they are because they benefit from the innovations of American big business. So if you ask which country does more good for the world as a whole, I think it's definitely the United States. Does it do better for Americans? Are Americans, the American worker, paying the cost of uh, the largesse of American business and the Scandinavian workers reaping the benefits? Well, American workers have higher wages than Scandinavian workers. Some parts of our government work less well, so a lot of Scandinavian schooling systems are better. But when it comes to wages and business, I would definitely prefer America. Uh, right now, the gap between uh, how much how much money goes to labor and how much money is kept by business is as big as it's been in the last, I think, post-war era. Is that something to watch out for? Uh, those data have been challenged. There are different ways of trying to measure the return to labor. What's the return to intellectual property? Uh, I don't think we quite know how that magnitude has developed. I think the key change is that the firms that are doing very well returns to both capital and labor are much higher than for laggard firms. So we have this new class of super firms. My goal is that we have more of those super firms rather than blame them. Yeah. Are super firms available in all sectors? It seems logical to me that, for instance, an Amazon can treat its workers relatively well, even if they don't allow the union, even if they don't allow unionization in their warehouses. But Part of that is because Amazon is in a dynamic field where there's lots of money to be made, or at least, you know, to bet, to give them credit, they help define that dynamic field. Uber's another example. But if you take, say, steel production or working in a quarry, I wonder if those firms can be as dynamic. I'm not sure we'll ever have super firms for your local dentist, but <laughs> it's surprising, for one thing, how many super firms are just old-style manufacturers. And also, because of information technology, more and more things are becoming scalable. So I think this country, and actually also China, can significantly increase its number of super firms. So Walmart's a super firm, right? Yeah, yeah. Auto Automakers. 
a large amount of the criticism of capitalism has been focused on firms like Facebook, firms like Google, the tech firms, even though they do seem to be, it does seem a little odd since these are the firms that people interact with and seem to like interacting with the most. They also are the firms that have gotten some of the most criticism. I think some of the criticism is apt, even if it's not so different. I've read your book and heard you talk about this. You don't think Google's sway on the election was either so great great or so different from, say, what television stations do in allowing uh, commercials to air. But do you think it's interesting that it seems like both the most hated and most loved companies are some of the same companies? Well, you call them the most hated, but I think they're the most hated by media most of all. And Google and Facebook have been the most effective competitors to mass media probably in the history of this nation. So I don't think they're getting fair coverage. I do think we should reconsider privacy regulation in a number of ways. Uh, But with users, they're still really quite popular. That's why they're Google and Facebook. I want to ask you another question about big business and efficiencies. It is true. I sit in the world of podcasting and I'm attached to Slate.com. And it is true that uh, Google and Facebook have totally reshaped the online advertising industry. And what they've done is basically offer more efficiencies. If I were an online advertiser, I would like what they're offering to me. I could target my customers better. But the effect has been a hollowing out of every other dot-com that wants to compete. Similarly, the local newspaper has been killed by the fact that they used to really charge almost usury rates to for the classifieds. Craigslist came along. Not a bad person, Craig Newmark, but it hollowed it out. And as a result, I think civically, we're much worse off. Um, A, do you agree with my assessment? And B, is there anything we should do about that? The market might offer efficiency, but there might be terrible costs to that. I agree with much of what you said, but I would stress one different point, that Facebook and Google advertising have very much broken down monopoly in other parts of the American economy. It's smaller businesses who use targeted ads and they, who couldn't afford, say, television or radio advertising. So the net effect has been to create a lot of new small businesses in most other sectors, admittedly not local newspapers. Patagonia has taken the stance that they will not be supplying their vests for companies, essentially, that they don't like. Is this a good idea? Is it more like the baker who refuses to bake a cake for a gay couple or more like an activist who refuses to buy an iPhone because of uh, work conditions at Foxconn? It sounds to me more like a public relations stunt. Maybe Ah. their employees are demanding it or some of their customers will have a fuzzy feeling toward the company. Uh, But I suppose my take is somewhat cynical on that one. I think they have the right to do it, but I wouldn't say that I'm personally impressed. What if it was earnest? Is that a positive trend? A company saying, no, you can't have our stuff because you're bad people. Well, it depends how they apply it. If they're refusing to support, you know, a directly evil totalitarian regime, well, yes. But, you know, there are a lot of companies that maybe have mixed records, but are actually doing a lot with foreign investment and bidding up wages and they get bad reputations. I don't think we should be refusing to deal with companies like that. They're offering better jobs to the people who work for them. I want to go a little far afield and uh, far from the book, as you do in your podcast. Have you been following the the college admissions scandal at all? And do you have any thoughts on it? I have been following it. Uh, I think it's tragic. And it's a sign that education is too much about signaling and not enough about learning. If those schools were really hard and demanded more of their students, well, you wouldn't pay to get your undeserving kid in the door because they'd show up and they would flunk, which is how it would be at Caltech. 
So I think it's a sign something's wrong in higher education. I find it very saddening. I think about this all the time, that for all this talk about statistics about how hard it is to get in, you never see any statistics about what the grade point averages are of the kids who do get in, what class attendance is of the kids who do get in. And I'd be fascinated to see what the grade point averages are of the first, you know, 4,000 kids they rejected or the ones who were going to get in but went to a next tier school. That would all be very useful information for our society. I've argued at length that many of these schools should take in many, many more students. University of Chicago has made moves in this direction, including a poorer and also more diverse student body. And, you know, I have nothing wrong with a school that's hard to get into, but then it should also be hard to get out of. And yeah. when you have one and not the other, that's a sign something's wrong. Why hasn't distance learning been a boon uh, to colleges, to these elite colleges? Is it because it's more about signaling than it is about actually educating people? Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but there's a lot of distance learning going on pretty effectively. After the MOOC bubble burst, a lot of things have happened under the surface, and uh, distance learning is reshaping parts of higher ed. I don't think we always know how well it's working. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, but we'll see. What do you think the costs of nominating either specifically or people like Stephen Moore and Herman Cain, not nominating, putting them on the Federal Reserve Board? I would prefer to nominate individuals who favor something like a nominal GDP rule and who have a PhD in economics and are from the more mainstream academic world. Yeah, in general. So what would happen if non-PhDs get on the Federal Reserve Board? What do you uh, foresee, the, again, the cost to be? Well, the earlier history of the board had plenty of non-PhDs. So, uh, you know, right now, nothing would happen. Well, um, economics are sim were simpler then, though, weren't they? I don't know. People say that, but economics is never simple. You know, Powell is a very good chair. I think the Fed has a, a wonderful staff. And right now, it's a robust institution. Um, you know, I would like to see us preserve that. Well, what do you think about economics? I've heard you talking about how your field seems to... Uh do you think it's done with its great breakthroughs, or are you just noting it hasn't had many great breakthroughs lately? I think economics is done with its great breakthroughs for a long time, but we now measure them better than ever before. It's an exciting field. We learn a lot pretty much every day. We refine our knowledge. We ask better questions. But there's not going to be another Adam Smith or even John Maynard Keynes. What field of social science is poised to have or is having great break breakthroughs, do you think? I don't think we live in a time of breakthroughs necessarily. I mean, you see this also in music, a lot of wonderful music, but it's nothing like, say, the Beatles in 1967. So I'm a big fan of anthropology and the general notion of trying to understand other cultures better. I'm very bullish on that whole enterprise, but I don't think there'll be this big grand new theory for anthropology or sociology. They're just important things to try to understand better. Going back to music, you wouldn't say that hip-hop represents at least a, uh, as bold a divergence and as big a breakthrough as, uh, from the established music as what the Beatles did for the genre of rock and roll and pop? Oh, I would, but hip-hop started a long time ago. Hip-hop and electronica arguably were the last new big things in music. That's fine, but that's now almost ancient history. Okay, last question. Why do you think so much science fiction is dystopian? Science fiction used to be much more optimistic. You had an age where Americans were in love with science. There was the space race. You had to fight off Sputnik. We were building things like crazy at a rapid pace. The Empire State Building went up, I think, in only a little more than a year. That's right. Now everything is slow. You know, the Second Avenue subway line in New York City, we started that in the 70s. And uh, we have also higher comfort 
And people turn on that system and they start criticizing it and they don't imagine a future so much better than the present they see. That makes them more negative. Which brings us back to, and I will ID you and say thank you to Tyler Cowen, the author of Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Antihero. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The Central Park jogger case occurred 30 years ago today. You might call it the Central Park Five case. The first name, the Central Park jogger case, emphasizes the victim, whereas the Central Park Five case, the emphasis is actually also on the victims. I remember a lot about the Central Park Five case. I remember it because I lived through it, and that is the subject of my spiel. It might seem obvious, bordering on anodyne, that a lived-through experience is a lot different from a learned-about experience. We all know that, and yet we don't feel it or make, make a mistake about it so often, every day. Like, just take the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral. If you've been there, if you walk through it, you will look at those news reports, and it will mean something different, deeper, but also more textured. You'll be able to sort of see around the edges of the frame of your memory, in a way that's different than if you know a lot about Notre Dame from having just read about it or seen it in pictures or viewed it in a movie. Think about Independence Hall in Philadelphia. What stands out to you? In history class, words like important and world-changing and historic attend to it. But if you've been there, you know what word I think of? Short door frames. They were so small. It was a massive document made by short people. I remember... The first time, I think it's actually the only time I saw the Kennedy compound. Think about that phrase, how large it looms. It means history and black and white films and and, and, and our, our equivalent of a royal family frolicking. The words they use to describe the Kennedy compound, there's sometimes a subset of words like clappered houses. I'm not great at architecture. What is a clappered house? It's like one of those phrases, like a powertrain warranty. What is that? Did J.D. Power and his associates sign off on it? So I went there after John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane crash. It was my first breaking news assignment. But those houses were so small and so ordinary. Take away the name Kennedy Compound. Take away the mystique. Take away, I guess, the crowds of media outside. It's just three kind of old houses on Cape Cod. Which brings me to the Central Park Five. What that name means and what it has come to mean is a lot different if you lived through the case and experience the case as it unfolded than if you are younger and experience the case looking back. So if you experienced it as it unfolded, it was part of this series of stories. I'll put Aton Pates, Bernie Getz, the Central Park Jogger case, Tompkins Square, Howard Beach, put them all in a row, and they all mean something about race and danger and the inherent unsafeness of New York City and civilization. So we know now, this is the truth, the boys in the Central Park case were all wrongly convicted in a textbook prosecution gone wrong, except back then the textbooks had yet to be written. Now we know so much more about false confession. We know a lot more about DNA. We know a bit more about media excess. Maybe we know a little bit more about racial sensitivity. Although, give me a sympathetic white victim and an unsympathetic group of young black men or brown men, and I still say it's easier to get a conviction in that set of circumstances than if the racial casting were different. 
I think a lot, and I've been thinking a lot about the idea of lived through history versus learned about history, especially when it comes to Joe Biden. Because so much of what we debate about Joe Biden is, especially when I talk about it with people younger than I, really inform people, it's so different from having lived through it. So the Anita Hill hearing, first of all, think about that phrase. I did a search for Anita Hill hearing and Clarence Thomas hearing. Within the last 90 days, there are many days when, uh, when on days when these two hearings were talked about in the news, where Google News picks up that Anita Hill hearing is said or written about more often than Clarence Thomas hearing, which is surprising because it was the Clarence Thomas hearing. What that means now is something about believing women and workplace harassment. What it meant then was the question, and it was, I don't know, I don't want to say legitimate, but it was an open question. Did this person do something wrong that would disqualify him for the Supreme Court? Joe Biden voted no to bring it back to Biden which to him was the biggest question at play. Now, that doesn't seem to be the biggest question. Now, when we look back, the biggest question is, do we believe women? Do we take sexual harassment seriously? Do we give women a fair hearing? The five W's of a story have all changed. The who I just talked about. Now it seems more about Anita Hill than Clarence Thomas. The what, the where, the why, the why were we there? Then it seemed about this question to confirm or not a Supreme Court justice. Now it means something about how men and and women interact and what credence we give to female accusers. The crime bill I've talked a lot about, I'm not going to bore you with it here, except to say this. You ask anyone under 40, tell me about the 1994 crime bill. What's the meaning of the crime bill? They'll probably say something like, it's the event. It's the decision that led to mass incarceration. Ask anyone who lived through it, they might say something like, oh, that was the bill that helped combat the societally crippling issue of crime. And it did so through this flawed tool of locking a lot of people up. I'm not here to talk about the crime bill. I'm here to talk about lived through experience and how it's different in terms of texture, in terms of meaning, in terms of depth than a learned about experience. You could read a great scholarly assessment like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. I still think living about it, remembering it correctly, having paid attention gives you such a different experience on reflection than even the best piece of teaching. So I was thinking about Central Park Five. Today I heard an interview with reporter Jim Dwyer, who covered it for Newsday, which happened to be the newspaper I read as I was growing up in Long Island in the 1980s. Jim Dwyer today is contrite. He was regretful. Even though he was skeptical then, he says he should have been more skeptical. And then, of course, they came to a person who cannot express regret and who never has. Of course I hate these people. And let's all hate these people because maybe hate is what we need if we're going to get something done. Donald Trump, of course, took out four full-page ads in four newspapers in New York calling for the death penalty for the accused men, even though the death penalty was not a punishment for a non-capital offense, putting aside the fact that the uh, accused boys were innocent. Not only has Trump never backtracked, he's doubled down in 2013, When someone challenged him on Twitter why he was still sticking to the idea that the Central Park Five were guilty, he wrote, then what were they doing in the park, playing checkers? I am strongly in favor of the death penalty. I'm also in favor of bringing back police forces that can do something instead of just turning their back because every quality lawyer that represents people that are in trouble said the first thing they do is start shouting uh, police brutality, etc. So this is a big thing that has changed about the meaning of the Central Park Five case. 
It's that Donald Trump is now at the forefront of it. And he wasn't. He was just an ancillary circus barker type figure. He was very much beside the point. He identified a feeling, a strong emotion, and he was trying to capitalize on this emotion. He was trying to insert himself in the middle of this emotion. Back then, he wasn't as good at it. Now, fewer gatekeepers. I guess he's better. I do think we've learned a lot about all the things I talked about up top, about false confessions and about jumping to conclusions. But I also think it's important and humble to remember why we made the mistakes. I don't mean to say any of this as an excuse. In fact, that's not why I thought it was interesting to think about. I just think it's interesting to think about lived experiences versus learned experiences from this standpoint. With a learned experience, we think about the thing that happened as a lesson and we tell ourselves, let's not do that. I do think there's something valuable in really remembering why we did that. And I hope that it can even be a tool in recognizing it and trying to prevent it from happening again. That's it for today's show. Just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader will vote for Herman Cain to sit on the Fed board only if Michelle Bachman gets tapped for the National Endowment of the Arts. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, will, will be withholding the dissemination of all podcasts that might discuss the Mueller report until all the hosts are good and sure they've just sat with it a little bit. The gist. Think of a 14-year-old listener who in 30 years has his own podcast So he'll be 44, and he'll look back, and he'll explain, you have to realize, back then, we didn't realize so much of Aaron Schock's bizarre actions when he was a congressman was because he was a clearly closeted gay man. And then his 48-year-old podcast co-host can say, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, we did. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.